Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name's Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching, and in today's episode, we're going to be digging into the world of mental skills. Now, many of you would be aware that I spend time working in the world of sport, in the corporate world, and of course, in education. And one thing that is a constant is recognizing that often there is a difference between what people are capable of doing and what they actually do. There's a difference between their potential and what we see. My guest today specializes in helping people bridge that gap. Aaron Walsh is an experienced performance coach and he currently works with the Waikato Chiefs in Super Rugby over in New Zealand. He's also consulted to a number of various teams to help build their mental skills programs. He's worked in Major League Baseball, he's worked in the NRL, and he's also worked with various national teams. He also coaches corporate leadership teams in order to help them create and maintain a high-performance working environment. Having recently connected with Aaron on LinkedIn, I came across one of his recent posts in which he shared five essential ideas that coaches need to be aware of when it comes to thinking about the psychology of their teams. This prompted me to reach out to Aaron to see if he would come on the show, and I'm delighted to say that he joins us today. Walshy, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, welcome, mate. Good to be with you. So um, across the ditch there, um, the mental skills coach at the Waikato Chiefs, I am pretty conscious of the fact that there'll be a fair few people listening to the podcast who wouldn't be too clear on what a mental skills coach does over and above the words. So I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your role at the Chiefs there or any other work that you're doing that really around the idea of mental skills. What, what are they and, and why do we need to coach them? Yeah, I think I, it's, for me, it's pretty simple. So I think the best way to answer, what are we trying to accomplish? So when I see my role is, um, is probably trying to bridge the gap between what we see someone is capable of and what they end up delivering. So we see people with high capability. They train really well. They've got all the physical tools. They've got the technical skills. And then come game time, you know, they don't deliver. Mm. And it obviously you know, obviously leaves a bit of a question mark for a lot of people. Like, okay, well, why can't they deliver? We see their potential. Um, we don't see it show up when it matters. And, you know, like I have a sort of a, an equation for high performance, which is, you know, capability minus interference. Mm. And so, you know, sometimes you're building capability, meaning you're building routines and structures and ways for people to think well, you know. And then the other side of it is sometimes you're reducing interference, which is, you know, they know what they're capable of, but these things get in the way. But I, I suppose it's a real, it's a human issue more than a, an athlete issue. So as you know, from our um, our evolutionary psychology and development, we look for threats. We look for things to go wrong. Um, we probably focus on the negative and that was necessary for us to survive. And so when you put someone in a high pressure situation, um, you actually have to bypass, I suppose, that you know, that hard wiring that we have within us to focus on what could go wrong, to protect ourselves, to, to be safe, to not make mistakes. Those things are really, really good in nature, but really, really poor on a, on a field. And so it's almost helping people navigate through the things that prevent them from delivering on their capability when, it's, when, when it matters. So that's probably in a short sentence what I'm doing. I'm working in that space. Yeah. So is it, 
when I hear you you share that back, like it should that or is that not the domain of the head coach or you know if we use sport as a, a metaphor for mm. for other you know other domains for the corporate world or, or or education is that not the the job of the leader to be to be doing that or have you found that perhaps they need some support in this as well you know the head coach the the, the corporate leader the, yeah. the school the educational leader yeah i think it's a bit of both so for example like you know, I work in, in rugby, um, our head coach needs to be across the physical demands of an athlete, but he's not an expert in that, mm. right? So he employs a strength and conditioning team to help mm. generate the behaviours that are required or the, you know, the programming or whatever it is. And I suppose this is where I probably come at it from a little bit of a different angle from traditionally is that I see the mental side of the game as a skill rather than a personality trait. So if you see it as a skill, so I can grow, I can get better, but I have to work on it. And so, you know, I don't expect the head coach to have the expertise in how to develop really good thinking under pressure. They might not have the expertise, particularly if they've been a player, because there's things that would become very natural to them. So their pressure capability might have been quite high and they can't really relate to what A and B and C is feeling or, you know, so I think it's along that line. But to answer the second part of your question too, yeah, like I think a lot of my work is probably more around helping the head coach um, organize their thoughts. So, you know, for a lot of times after a game, I'll write a, an email to the coach. It will outline what I saw, what I think the, the mindset stuff for the week could be, what the areas that we could look to focus on, how do we direct our energy in the right places. So I think it's probably reassuring for them to have someone that's not necessarily deeply entrenched within the mechanics of the game to be able to give them a perspective that they can use throughout the week so yeah I think I think that the, I think the head coach needs to be really aware of psychology like I think I I wrote about that and I you think about I, I think I did a bit of research where I talked to a couple of hundred head coaches around the world and all in professional sports and I asked them a question do you think you know the mental side of performance is a plays a big part in the overall performance of your team and of course the answer was yes and then the second follow-up question how many of you have a program and it was 11 percent and so there was this i see the value of it i know it's important but i don't know what to do with it Mm. and i think that's where a lot of our coaches sit um so if they have the luxury at the professional level which they do to hire someone like what we do great Um, but then, you know, when I wrote, you know, a little bit of the post that we'll talk about today is Mm. that was really designed towards there's hundreds of you who coach who don't have that luxury, but what can you learn from psychology that might help you become a better coach? I think, uh, you've mentioned there the the post that you've written, um, that really was the impetus for me to reach out to you and, um, and see if you wanted to come on the, on the podcast, you know, it was around the idea of things that coaches should be aware of or be mindful of um you know ideas from from psychology and it resonated with me because of the work that not only I do in sport but also in in the corporate world and and in education because when I hear you talking about um you know the the gap between what you're capable of and and what you produce and you know or, or talking around mindset or whatever in my experience what I'm hearing a lot of is exactly what you just said it's like yeah we know that's important uh, we really, you know, should be doing something that they would really benefit from having a better mindset or, or a better approach to handling, you know, pressure. Not sure what to do with it. So 
let's just pass it over as a you problem. You know, like yeah, the, yeah. it's the, the athlete needs to turn yeah. up with the right mindset. The student yeah. needs to have a growth mindset. The the, yeah. the, the the employee needs to turn up really ready to work. Yeah. And I think in my experience that that's one of the big barriers is just this understanding that it's not an individual. Well, this is this is my opinion, yeah. I guess, and I'd be interested to get your perspective on it. I don't see this thing as, a, as being an individual trait that you either have or you don't have or that you can develop purely on your own necessarily. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, saying that you need to fix your mindset, that's an easy, that's a, <laughs> yeah, a yeah. cop-out, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about it, like how many people today are sitting, you know, all around the world going, geez, I could lose three or four kgs or I need to start eating better. And you know, you're talking to one of them right now, mate. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I've been in that category for a lot of years. So, but but often it's the overwhelming concept of where do I start? You know, so so when I think about the whole mental side of people's development, I sort of have a pyramid that I operate off. So, so the bottom foundation of the pyramid would be grow yourself. So that would be about you know like. Do you know what you're trying to accomplish? So it might be a little bit around, do you have a clear purpose? Do you understand what you're trying to trying to do? Do you know how to put together a weekly schedule? You know, those sort of things. You know how to get balance in your life. Like that's the foundation to me. And like sometimes mental skills, I think, I don't know, we talk to a player and we'll go, hey, we just need to teach them a breathing protocol. I'm like, no, we need to teach them how to organize their week because that's way more important now right so and that's where i think people get confused about it they will they almost take like the high ticket items so you know like when you begin to work out you know the bicep curl isn't the foundation it's squats and mm. deadlifts and and we got to do that grunt work to get your foundation right and the grunt work around getting your foundation right is like really around managing your life and mm. and growing yourself and looking at the areas and then I suppose after that, I have, you know, the next layer of the pyramid would be grow your mindset, which is about how you approach each day. What are you, you know, what are you, are you looking for things to go right? Are you looking for things to go wrong? You know, just simple tools. And then finally, the top would be grow under pressure. Mm. So, you know, like that, how do you, how do you still function in moments where you feel vulnerable? Mm. Um, So I think there's a, a sort of a combination of things there where, um, if you are only looking at it through the really narrow lens of, um, you know, a couple of things, either I have a personality trait that can't be overcome or I only work on it when things go wrong mm. rather than, no, this is a part of my development of me as a person. And like I have a physical program, I have a mental program. Mm. And then it's up to the providers like me and you. And this is where I think, you know, sometimes the, the, the mental skills world lets itself down is that we have way more philosophers than we have tradesmen. Mm. So, you know, like you'll have people that come to a team or come to a company and they sit there and they get their little notepad out and they make all these observations, which is fantastic, but no solutions. Yeah. And no solutions that are relevant to the needs of the group at any given time. Mm. And it's almost like, you know, it's easy to look at what's going wrong. I can tell you that in five minutes, but can you help them navigate through that and help things get better? I'm interested about that bottom um, of, of the pyramid where you're talking about managing your own life. Yeah. Because, again, if I sort of think back, not only in – so I'm, I see this in the sports world and I also yeah. see this in, in, in education with young, you know, younger people. In order to get this right, do you have to have a sense of agency, volition, and autonomy? And 
in order to you know really thrive under pressure and what's the cost when if we're being honest a lot of people in elite sport and in younger people in our life their life is managed for them you know they're, they're told where to be what to do who they're going to be doing it with and, and I'm just wondering maybe it's different in um, you know in, in your experience or whatever but how much do we hand hand back to to people and say actually this part is your responsibility i'm with you so i had a had an interview the other day where someone asked me a question they said well if you could pick one trait to be an athlete from a from a you know mental sort of emotional domain what would it be and it's very very easy for me to answer that it's ownership so the guys that i work with who are the best they own their development they own their career they own their time i'm a resource i'm not driving it i'm not sending out texts saying have you done this have you yeah. nah, none of that <laughs> and i sort of have made it a a philosophy of my work i suppose and i'd say it to teams i was just with a corporate team yesterday and i said you know listen in the next month i'm happy to meet with the executive team four of you i'm not going to email you one of you i'm not going to message one of you it's on you yeah and i want you to email me or message me with an agenda with what you want to get out of the meeting i like and that's to me the only way it works yeah like we can we can create hunger in the younger ones who don't have a framework of how these things operate. But my sort of policy is I feed the hungry. So if you're not hungry, mm. I'm not going to try and chase you up. But if you're hungry, I'll give you everything I've got. The door's open, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to push you through it. No. It's, it is a really interesting one. I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's, I think it's a conditioning thing. I think it's, uh, you know, and, and, and I think also it's coming from best intentions from the people who are putting those frameworks around, which unfortunately, though, end up meaning you have people who don't own it. They, they don't own their craft. They don't own their trade. They don't, they don't own their mistakes. No. I think in, a, in our attempts to try and help them, you know, I think sometimes we're, 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 self, we're sabotaging them. Well, I mean, you, you know, like with our children, like parenting is a great always a great reflect like if I think about what I do for a job you know I always reflect go back to parenting because it's mm. almost the identical thing and you know with my children I, I have to develop a level of self-sufficiency mm. I have to develop a level of ownership and that yep. means that for them to be self-sufficient and to own things they have to fail right? and they have to not avoid adversity yep. and they have to be okay with suffering like that's just because that's the common denominator of life. Mm. And I think, you know, a systemic issue that we have within our parenting, particularly, you know, in the last 20 years, is this idea that we can only develop our children in safety. And people go, oh, well, you're in sports, you can say that. I'm like, well, it's not that. It's about how do we develop capability in people? Mm. One of the ways we develop capability in people is through resistance. You've got to have resistance. You've got to have a headwind. You've got to have something that's moving you out of your comfort zone and requiring you to do things that, you know, may feel a little bit out of your reach in order to grow. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why we would have a high level of protection, everything done for our young people. We don't develop capability. One of the headwinds that might come on um, mm -hmm. is, is the pressure that yeah. people feel. Um, and again, regardless of the domain, whether it's a footy field, mm -hmm. classroom, or, or a boardroom, part of your work, or I'd imagine a significant part of your work, is to help people um, perform better, yeah. perform to their capabilities un under that pressure. 
And you talk about helping them understand where the pressure's coming from and then developing a, a plan to, to overcome it. I'm wondering if you could give kind of like a hypothetical yeah, yeah. Um, example of, of, of what that actually looks or sounds like. So, so I'll give you where I think probably our three main pressure points are. Mm. Um, very generic, but you'll understand. So I think expectation will be probably one. So, which is basically a big questions, um, you know, ruminating within someone's thought process, which is it. Am I going to be good enough? So this would be pre-game. I'd see a lot of this, like a lot of anxiety perhaps around performance related to the expectation that I sh- I am going to deliver um, for my team. I'm going to deliver for my family. I'm going to deliver for myself. I'm going to deliver for the people who are watching on television and the fans that are in the stands. Like, And if I don't, what happens? What happens? So it's always the I don't is the the thing that creates the pressure. You know, the second one to me when we talked about a little bit before we started was judgment. And it's a very personal thing. So what will people think of me if I don't? Okay, and there's a whole lot of pressure around that relational side of whether that's social media, whether it's coaches, and then I think the final one for me is consequences, which isn't about people; it's about outcomes. So will I get selected next week? Um, will I have a contract? Can I pay my mortgage? You know, all of those things begin mm-hmm. to grow and grow and grow. So, you know, that holy trinity of pressure, if you have a person in your team who's, say, looking to play in the weekend and they're, they're, they're overcome with the fact that I don't know if I'm going to be good enough. You know, that's a huge amount of anxiety around that. I, you know, what will people think of me if I'm not good enough? And what will happen to me if I'm not good enough? So can you see the framework that people started is so base level damaging to our psychological like our freedom so they're always thinking about so when i think about pressure i said you know pressure you can sort of look at it one or two ways right you can look through pressure through the lens of what will go wrong or what could go right so hypothetically i might have a, a player who um, this is a really common one i'm coming back from injury mm. will i be okay and my answer was always i don't know <laughs> i don't know mm-hmm. but you know, what action, so I think anxiety for one, anxiety, so you talk about pre-game anxiety or anxiety in general for people. Um, I think it was James Clear had this brilliant line in Atomic Mind, uh, Atomic Habits where he said the antidote to anxiety is action. And I just think it's a tremendous principle as far as like what action are you taking towards the thing that's causing you anxiety? And so, you know, for an athlete pre-game, I'd, I'll often use uh, previewing, like visualization previewing. Yeah. Um, where I'll give them scenarios that they fear. So you drop your first ball. How do you want to respond in that moment? Or, you know, so they begin to to, to preview their behavior. Then all of a sudden, that unknown becomes a little bit more familiar, and the anxiety is reduced. Yeah. So that would be an example. That's a really interesting example because I reckon that's probably counterintuitive to a lot of people, right? You you you've, it, you imagine what could go wrong yeah. and how you whereas in the instagram meme world you know where it's no no it's all positivity you know you want to be more resilient you want to be a growth mindset you got to all the things that could go right you know manifest that yeah but but you're actually saying no no let's talk okay you drop your first ball yeah that's is is that an example of the tradesman versus the philosopher like actually this will help i think so because you know, the philosopher may say we don't want to um, insert into the subconscious messages that could be mm. disturbing. I would say that you have to, so when I think about, when I approach a team, like, or, or work in a sport in particular or, or a business, 
like the context gives you clues of what's required. Mm. So people like, like people go, do you have to be a really good psych to do a job in rugby? No, I can just say simply this and <laughs> this is how I do it. What clues does rugby tell you? Like there's clues in the game of rugby that will give you an idea of what you need to be mentally good at. Mm. Right. So there's clues in golf. So you look at golf, golf's a sport where you initiate movement. You know, rugby is predominantly a sport where you respond to movement. The needs are very different. Contextually, they're very different because the sport's telling you what you need. So golf is telling you need a pre-shot routine. You need to be able to shake off the last shot. You need to be able to have clarity over where you want to hit the ball. Like we know that, right? You need to deal with the space between um, when you finish your pre-shot routine and you hit the ball. You have to initiate the movement. So there's, there's room for a whole bunch of thoughts to get in. Now that tells you, you have to have a set of tools that are very, very different to someone who's on a rugby field who's reacting. 90% of the time they're playing out of their subconscious reaction, being instinctual to what in front of them and hoping their experience and the reps that they've generated over time enables them to respond rightly to the pitcher in front of them. Mm. That's a different set of mental skills. Yeah. The only ones won't be a goal kicker or an out in rugby line-out thrower where you initiate the movement. Yeah. So... The philosopher may take general principles of psychology that they've learned at university, not have a contextual understanding of the environment that they're in, try to apply them and wonder why they don't resonate with the people in front of them because they're not specific enough to the needs that the athlete or in, in the corporate case, the leader may have. And, and leading under pressure, are there added responsibilities for the leader to maintain you know, a, a clarity, maintain messaging, yeah. being able to, you know, diagnose and, and, and solve issues on the run? I think it depends on your experience. You know, like we had a, um, a situation the other week where, oh, it might have been start of the year preseason where I asked a question in the room of what do you think the most valuable mental skills you'll need this year? And then, you know, I asked the coaches what's, what's the most valuable mental skills that a player can possess? And one of our older, really experienced and awesome coaches um. You know, he was the last to go and everyone was like, oh, mindfulness. You know, like just the, and he's like, experience. And I just went, that's it. Like he nailed, like experience is so valuable from a mental perspective. Like I don't think we understand the value of experience. So, you know, we might have a, uh, you know, a guy that's played 25 test matches in our team. So when he comes to a super rugby game, he's not overwhelmed. Does that make mm. sense? Like there's no yeah, sense yeah. of, I've been here before. I, I know how this is going to feel. I don't have anxiety over what I'm about to face. But then, you know, a month later, he might be in Alice Park in South Africa against the Springboks and hasn't been there before. And all of a sudden, his anxiety levels are spiked, not because he changed as a person, but because the experience, he, is, he doesn't have a reference point or he doesn't have a database of experiences he can draw on to, to make him feel comfortable in a moment that could be potentially overwhelming. Anna Mears, the um, dual Olympic champion uh, mm. cyclist, was was a guest on the podcast, and um, she spoke about preparing for an Olympic final place she'd never been before yeah. by visualizing it yeah. for three years. <laughs> you know, every week for three years, yeah. um, with a with a mental skills coach taking her through the, the routine. Can so I appreciate there's real experience, but to what extent can you or do you do the work around creating a virtual experience or a or a mental experience? And how closely, you know, are they on par? It's an age-old question, isn't it, really? Like, can you train pressure? Not really. Not really. Because 
the con like you think about like when we're training we can create scenarios and all of that stuff it's like you know when the sas takes people to afghanistan they'll do all of that but what's missing is saying a rugby scenario is a scoreboard and a clock that's what creates pressure what's missing in a sas scenario is death mm. that's what creates pressure yeah so i think you can prepare for it but i don't think you can replicate it yeah, I think there's just things happen in those moments that, like, you know, it's Mike Tyson's, the great philosopher, Mike Tyson's famous line is, right, everybody has a plan to get punched in the face. Yeah. And so, you know, like, there's only a little bit of dangers of visualization for me around in the athlete space is what happened if things don't go to plan? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, well, I've visualized the perfect race, but what happens if the perfect, like, what happens if your preparation doesn't go well? Yeah. You know, what happens if the bus is late? You know, so you know, you know that fine line. Like I think I talk yeah, about yeah. with athletes all the time is that, you know, we had a situation when I was talking to the athlete the other day. Like they were the most prepared and felt the best they had for a game all year is their worst game of the year. Mm. And what they recognised was the fact that they didn't they took it for granted, rather than had that intent. Just because I've done a good week. So you think about this: how many coaches have you heard say I didn't see that coming? I've said that myself. Yeah. And the reason is, is that preparation is a process. Performing is an event. They're not the same thing. Mm. Now, preparation gives you a really good chance of performing well, but it does not guarantee that you'll perform well. You still got to show up on the day and get the job done. Yeah. And I imagine talking to Anna, she was very aware of the comfort she got by her preparation mentally to visualize an Olympic final. But I, I guarantee there's no doubts in her mind. I got to turn up here. Right. I got to front, yeah. and I've got to, even though I've done all this work, I've got to front and still absolutely nail this. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a fascinating example where, yeah, we, you you see this everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Not just in sport. I've done the work. It's yeah. you know, and and yeah, they just, it, yeah, interesting. The level of intent, the level of uh, deliberate action, almost. Yeah, it wanes, right? The more the more preparation they've done, it can sometimes wane unless they really are, as you say, switched on. They have that trigger. We even Tiger Woods last week, like um, he's talking, he had a really awful warm up before mm. his first round of the Masters, and he talked afterwards, and he said, you know, I had a terrible warm up, but it didn't bother me because my dad always used to say to me, "Did what's the purpose of a warm up? Mm. Yeah. Get warm. <laughs> are you warm? Yep. Okay. Job done. Now go play." Like there wasn't this needed correlation. And I guess that's what I'm sort of referring to is that do we do we sometimes create inappropriate comfort zones through preparation that still don't require the performer on the day to step into the uncomfortable space? We still They still got to step into the uncomfortable space. Yeah. And preparation doesn't uh, mitigate that. I think it just lessens the impact of it. One of the um, key things in in the the post that um, we've referred to was this idea of the the importance of language and the importance of words yeah. and and whether you're a coach whether you're a leader whether you're an educator yeah. you know words super important because they carry so much meaning but often they'll mean different things to different people and you know digging into that I, I imagine you would have lots of conversations yeah. with all manner of, of of people and there was there was one line. Um, in in there, um, in in that post, which really struck me, was saying, you know, like 
in, in order to really be deliberate and mindful in our conversations is to think of it along the lines of, you know, think of it like this. This is the conversation they will replay at home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you just draw that out a little bit for me? Like, because, you know, I think often we have a lot of ad hoc conversations and, and things, you know, just off the top of my head. And I'm wondering how more deliberate we should be in the conversations we're having, particularly in and around, you know, whether it's a learning conversation or whether it's a review of a performance. Mm. I think it also goes a little bit back to what you're, you're talking about there is that it's it's really how we how we lead people. So like, you know, like uh, my good friend, a guy called Owen Eastwood, wrote a book called Belonging and he had a post the other week on LinkedIn that was brilliant where he talked about lazy leadership. He said lazy leadership was basically taking advantage of the cortisol and the adrenaline and creating uh, effort through fear, right? So you can create response through fear. So consequences, all of that sort of stuff. It's really lazy, right? We know when we're at our bit and it leads to chronic stress. People get burnt out. They don't want to be involved. And so if you think about all those child prodigy athletes or athletes that you know that have stepped away from the game, a lot of it's the chronic stress and the chronic stress that coaches inadvertently place upon the athlete by throwaway comments that they think could be used as a motivational tool is actually, you know, it's it's not enabling the athlete to actually perform how they're capable of. It's, you know, it's more of a disabling tool. So you know, we need a big one from you this week, you know, and, you know, I see the young fella behind you is playing well and, you know, it's, you probably need to step up here a little bit. And then, you know, yes, there's a good aspect to that of challenging our players, but unless you have, you know, that sense of, uh, of an environment that is high in belonging and trust and connection, that can get wildly misinterpreted, right? Um, and I don't know about you, but I did, I've probably done 30 reviews in the last 10 years for teams. 30 of them have said at the end of the review, we need to be more accountable, we need to be more honest and always push back and say, I don't think you need to be all, more honest. I think you need to be more connected because if you're more connected and you trust each other, honesty will be a natural, um, it'll be a natural person in your environment to use that term, right? Yep. But but forced honesty, forced accountability. And so sometimes I think that leaders have the idea of that if we just throw a little bit of pressure through a throwaway comment there in their mind, they're thinking we could get a bit of, bit of motivation here. This might be the little you know insight we need with them. Just think about that. They go home and they sit on it all night. So I always say to, you know, or to head coaches, I said, you know, what messes do you want your athlete thinking about all night when they walk out of the room? You know, and I think it's an incredibly important message. Like if you're a school teacher, if you're a leader, like, like I know that as a parent, I've said like what I thought were quite throwaway comments to my children and particularly, you know, teenage daughters. Um, they don't, they're not, re- they're not received that way. <laughs> yeah. Which, which, I mean, the, 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 the you need to care, right? Because <laughs> if you if, if you ask someone, you know, what do you want them thinking about? Yeah. You genuinely need to care yeah. for the people, yeah. you know, that, that, that you have. Yeah. yeah. Whereas if you don't care about them as a person and only relate to them as a performer, then their well-being won't be a big priority for you. Mm. 
So when we talk about a lot of the well-being fallout that I know we've had in New Zealand, I know you've had in Australia, a lot of it goes back to the fundamental issue of care. Like, like if I cared about the person as much as I cared about the performer, then I'd be much more measured in the way that I would speak to them. But if I care only what they can bring to the table as a performer and who they are as a person is quite secondary to me and how, how, how our relationship is on a person level is very secondary, then obviously you're going to have a lens in that relationship that's really skewed because your goal is to produce performance. Mm. You know, their goal might be they, they want to perform for you, but they need to connect with you first. And, and the irony is, of course, that if you approach it performance first, yeah. performance usually suffers, yeah. which means you end up getting the shits with them because of something you did. Yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah it happens all the time. And that's what even yeah. to athletes, you've got to remind them, like I said to an athlete the other day, it's like, your sport's not your identity. Okay. Mm. It's not where you get. So I, when, I, when I talk to players about where it gets misaligned, so you think about the obsessive nature of athletes, there's three like big flags for me is mood, self-esteem and relationships. So when they begin to get impacted, say 24 hours after performance, I need to have a chat with them. Mm. And, you know, I had a chat with one young fella the other week and I said, listen, like rugby can't be where you get your self-worth from. Can't be if you play well, you're a good man. It can't be what generates energy in your relationship. So if you play well, you want to engage with people. If you don't play well, you want to isolate. It can't be what dictates your mood. So if you play well, you feel good. If you play poorly, you disappear. But what we've got to understand is that that rugby is a canvas for you to express your identity through. And I think a lot of our athletes, in the, if they have an identity vacuum, then the sport becomes their identity, right? So, you know, I think in our pathways, how much work are we doing around identity that relates to them as a person before we even talk about what they bring to the table as a performer. Because if you get that around the wrong way, then their value, how they perceive themselves and how they believe others perceive them will be totally attached to performance, which is a death nail for someone's yeah. mental health and well-being within a professional environment. I've had athletes say, you know, people love me more when I win yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. less when I lose. Yeah. It's like that can't be true yeah. and yet to them it is it's yeah, yeah it's, a, it's I remember i had one olympic athlete a couple of years ago in a team meeting the team just about had a lynch mob but it was she said it very very right she said a gold medal won't make me a better person yeah and you could see yeah. the team <gasps> but then yeah. you know it was actually an incredibly brave thing to say but she and she carried on saying if i'm not happy now a medal won't make me happy yeah yeah. And I thought, what a mature insight. But I would say that a lot of athletes may say that out loud, or coaches would love to say that, like, you know, we care about you as a person. Da, 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 da. And I get it. I get all of that. But performance is everything. Mm. Yeah. Which, which really, you know, speaks to the the importance of that environment and having yeah. people around them. So, you know, I guess in the ideal world, uh, you mentioned it there, you know, in the pathways, this this would be there. We'd have coaches and, and support staff and families and athletes who all understood this. And, and you know, in the ideal world, we'd never have another issue again. <laughs> but perhaps in the in the real world, yeah. you know, when, when confidence does take a knock um, and all the, all the, the, the issues that you've, you've raised – come up they feel even 
stronger than before because maybe we're one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, however many losses on the, on the, the trot. Yeah. How do you help people guard against what perhaps would be the natural threat response, which would be yeah. to fight, flight, or fly into you know the, these less helpful thinking yeah. patterns? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it's departmentalizing it. So, like, I remember, you know, as I mentioned, um, when I was with the Chiefs one year, we lost nine in a row to end the year, and then we lost the first two. So 11, and that was equal to a record of most super losses. And I suppose in our case, we were getting blown off the park. I think I mentioned to you, we had five games, we lost in the last five minutes within five points. And it was just that, honestly, the worst run of, like even this luck, like poor decisions from refs, like just injuries, you know, all those things, like every, the perfect storm of all of this, we had, that's when COVID was 2020 and we didn't probably know what to do, how to respond, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Point yeah. being is that um, I remember one time taking a few of the guys, I think it was a team session and just saying like, I understand right now that we're trying to get up our own Everest, but our backpack's too heavy. So I had them, I had a backpack with rocks in, and the rocks were disappointment, embarrassment, shame, mm. grief, you know, like anger, frustration. And I just had them take a rock out and go talk about it. And what I found is that once they talked about it with each other, the burden was lessened. Yeah. <laughs> like there was just a bit of like, okay, we're all feeling this. No one's probably brave enough to admit it, but we know we're exactly where we're at. We know we're low on confidence, right? And you know, and, and the hardest thing is that, you know, I don't know how you find this in coaching, but I reckon the hardest decision for a coach by far is when you're not, when you're underperforming, do you persist and trust and believe in the processes that you have in place or do you make adjustments? And there's a real danger. Like if you persist and it's not working, you can't do that. But if you make adjustments and they don't work, then you're back to ground zero. Mm. Um, so, you know, like it's understanding, I think that, if we can have them carry, if we can um, probably not carry what's best, if we can get a lot of the emotional and mental weight off them, um, and then all it takes is one thing to happen. Yep. So I remember against, I think it was round three, we're playing the Hurricanes, we're down 26 7 at half time. So you think, oh gosh. Here we go again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We come yeah. back and we won the game like, like 38 30. Yeah. And. It's actually interesting. The week before we were playing the Crusaders in Christchurch, we're getting beat quite comprehensively. But in the second half, we were unbelievable, like as far as character and heart. And like we just wouldn't go away. Mm. And I remember saying to the head coach, I'm like, we're fine. You know what I mean? Like I could just see, mm. like, we're fine. We'll be fine. And then we win the next week. And then we won six in a row. It just needed like the, and we went to the final of the Super Rugby Finals last year. And it just needed something. Like it just needed evidence to i suppose spike confidence like and that's the thing for me confidence confidence you don't create you earn it mm. so you don't get confidence from saying i'm going to be confident you get confidence when you have a database of evidence that gives you the right to be confident yeah and so i think that confidence once you have evidence boy you can just go then can't you but they're horrible it's the worst place. I, people go, you're so loved to work, love, lucky to work in sports. And I would never argue with that. I feel like I have the greatest privilege in the world of doing what I'm doing. But at the same time, driving in on a Monday morning after eight losses in a row, it's not a happy place. No. Yeah. So to, maybe to r round this out then. Yeah. So what, um, 
you know, whether it's a, a corporate leader who's yeah. feeling under the pump because for whatever reason, you know, it's been three or four bad quarters in a row, or yep. perhaps there's a, an educational leader who's yep. constantly getting hammered because their results, you know, the, the, the aren't where they need them to be for the kids or, or, a, or a coach. How do you, what's a little tripwire or reminder or trigger, whatever word it could be that, that could help them when they feel themselves starting to gravitate to just focus on performance, focus on, you know, by any means necessary, <laughs> for yeah. want of a better phrase, uh, back to the more person-centered, long-term view. Um, yeah, and, and ultimately, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll say it, ultimately the, a better approach. I think, I think the first thing is, is um, previous failure is no predictor of the future. And it's really hard to remember when you're not going well. Like, because you are losing doesn't mean you will lose. And I think that's a really important thing. So you can you can say, okay, well, yes, we have a track record of not succeeding, but it's not a predictor of the future. Every game or every quarter is a new start. And so, you know, that's what I think gives you a bit of hope. You always get the chance to, to go again, particularly in sports. Like, you know, we got beaten in the weekend comprehensively, but I think there's an excitement like, oh, right, we get to go again now. Yeah. But the bit between our teeth, which is good. But um, secondary, I think, alongside those lines is that um, outcome outcome tells us what we're doing. It doesn't tell us why it's happening. Okay. And it doesn't tell us how it's happening. So like I do quite a bit of work in baseball. So, and with the analytics, the analytics are massive. So, you know, right now there's drafts happening and a bit of analytical work around that. And, and I'll go to the analytics guys and say, okay, your projections tell us what this athlete is capable of. That's all they do. They tell us what. They don't tell us why. Okay, that's why we need scouts. And they don't tell us how. And that's why we need emotional and mental understanding of the athlete, right? Mm. They don't tell us how they're good and they don't tell us why they're good. They just tell us what they can do. So I think when you look at it holistically, when you're in those patches, like I would be looking at all the time the why and the how. Mm. Why is this happening? Okay. Um, if it's negative, how is it happening? So what are our, you know, because people talk about process, 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 but I think there can be process apathy and the evidence of good processes is ultimately performance. So you can tell me you got a great, great process, but if you're underperforming, I'll question your process every day of the week. Yeah. Um, but then there's outcome obsession, eh? which you know, the, oh, yeah. the welcome to sports, which is outcome yeah. obsession every week. You, you know, you know, you, you, you win, but you might not know why. Yeah. So I think good leaders are able to step back and they look at the narrow and the wide simultaneously. So they look with perspective saying two bad quarters doesn't make 10 years of really good history with this team, you know, on, in a corporate sense. Two bad games doesn't make us a bad team. Okay, yeah. But then they can narrow and go, we can identify the key things that if we do well, we perform well. And we'll return to that well every single time because we have immense trust in it. Yeah. Um, so, and I remember Steve Hansen, the All Black coach, once saying, you know, it was a new season, saying, oh, you got bringing out any new stuff this year? And he simply said, no, we want to do what we did last year better. Yeah. So no searching. No. Yeah, we've worked, we've worked what works, but we now need to work it better. Yeah, we just needed, like, and that's yeah. why I see, like, particularly with coaches, I'm just talking about my sport experience, when the team isn't going well, they're always feeling that tension. And then, 
like almost looking for a magic bullet rather than looking to their foundations. So like maybe if we just have this message this week, it'll ignite something rather than go, this is the consistent messaging that we've had from day one that we believe is the identity of this team. And we're going to bang that drum till the cows come home. Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Um, as, as I mentioned um, at the start, you know, I, I, I connected with you after yep. coming across a, a LinkedIn post. Uh, I'll put the link to your profile in the show notes here. So if anyone's interested in connecting with you, they can do so through LinkedIn. I'm wondering if there's um, any other way people can connect. Because I know that you sometimes offer courses. And, yeah, and, I just go like. through LinkedIn. Like, and I'm not very, like, like, you know, on LinkedIn, people ask me, what's your LinkedIn strategy? I post, I post something when it's interesting to me. That's yeah. my that's my strategy. So, um, you know, like I get you know five or ten messages a week from people who will read things or hear things, and that's probably the easiest way to. Yeah. I just find LinkedIn as a, a good platform because I want to explore the work I do with a whole bunch of other people and have your ideas critiqued. And whereas like Facebook and Instagram's like, ugh, you know, it's just all fluff. Whereas I feel like at least there's a bit of substance here there. Yeah. And then, so, you know, that's pretty much what I've done for the last numbers of years is just like, yeah. if I find something that I think is really interesting and, you know, I've just done some work with Otago university around the integration of mental skills into elite teams. And I think that's probably what has caught most people's intrigue the last probably three or four years has been, I've probably dived as deep as I can and, uh, the difference between, I, so, I suppose, perceived and actualized value around mental skills. So everybody agrees it's important, but hardly anyone's doing it. So why is that? Yeah. And I think people are really interested in that because they're asking the same questions within their own teams, whether it's, you know, like, I'm probably a bit like you. So probably 40% of my work is sports, uh, 40% is corporate, and 20% is, is schools and education and university. So, you know, I know across the board, like I was in Chiefs Monday and Tuesday, I was with a corporate yesterday, I got a corporate this afternoon. The messaging's not much different, mate. No, because people are like people, right? Yeah, they want to grow and they know yeah. they've got area, they know the mental side of their life, how they think, how they, you know, how they deal with certain things, how they look at certain things has a huge bearing ultimately on their performance and they want to be able to do that better, but they just don't know how. And so I think the more we can get better, and I think this encouragement for anyone who's in our space is like, uh, you know, I think it was Sam Kane said to me, which really hit me one day. It was on a Tuesday, um, and, and he said, you know, what 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 do you got for me this week? What are we working on? And I was a bit slow, you know, like to. He just said, Lena, I said, Walshy, if I can't train on a Tuesday, I can't use it on a Saturday. Yeah. And it was this idea that the stuff we're doing together, we're training it. We're training it. We're working on it. We've got a program, just like you do for your body. So even when I meet with a, an athlete one-on-one, I do three processes. I assess their needs, I prescribe an intervention, and I monitor their progress. No different to a personal trainer, but you know, all I'm working with is their brain. It's just a bit of a different domain. Yeah. But for most people, that's quite discouraging, as you know, because I can hop on a scale, look at a mirror, yeah. I can see if I'm getting better physically. Mm. It's quite sometimes quite difficult to see if you're getting better mentally. Yeah, and it can fluctuate quite rapidly as opposed to yeah. you know a, a physical program tends to be more gradual, more tangible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we don't approach it as a skill that can be trained and developed, 
then I think we do a huge disservice because we leave people with no options of growth. That's a perfect way to finish. Thank yeah. you so much for your time, welcome, mate. mate. And go well this weekend. Yeah. And um, yeah, look forward to catching up for a you coffee too, one mate. day when I'm over that side yeah, of the ditch. Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll be in Sydney sometime in the next few months, I think. So we have to grab one. Oh, fantastic. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. If you found that conversation worthwhile and you'd like to connect with Aaron, his LinkedIn profile is in the show notes. Also, as we always say, if you found that conversation interesting, then there's a fair chance that someone you know would also find it interesting. So please feel free to share this podcast as far and as wide as you can in your networks. As always, if you'd like to find out more about our work, or perhaps you have a question that you'd like to leave for an upcoming Q&A episode, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page there. But until next time, thank you so much for listening. Take care. Take it easy.